Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, we have on Travis Sher, founder of North Island Ventures. Larry has worked for many years with Travis previously at DCG, and we're bringing Travis on today to chat about a few topics, but really just Travis stands out for having worked in crypto since 2015. He's seen many, many different kinds of cycles. He's been investing in the space since then, and I think in this episode, we'll drop a lot of wisdom and insights on investing from a high level, crypto companies he's seen over the years, and also the importance of ethics and integrity and other lessons he's picked up in the industry. So without further ado, welcome, Travis. Thank you, Derek. Hello, Larry. Great to be chatting with you guys. Maybe a good place to start, Travis, is chatting a little about your background. I mean, I know this, Derek knows this, but I think few other people do, which is, first of all, you studied law in college, you went to law school, and then right out of college, you practiced law. This happens occasionally, but most VCs do not have a legal background or have certainly not practiced law. How did you go from law to VC? I started my career as a corporate lawyer at a big firm in New York. And fortunately for me, I hated it with an intense passion. It was very dull. I felt like I had no control over my life. And I didn't really care about the outcomes of the transactions I was working on. And it was painful enough that I knew that I had to get out and do something else. There were a bunch of, I think, little things that inspired me to just leave and quit. One interesting one is I read Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And he talks about his background in that book. And he, too, was a lawyer. He got his JD, and then he worked at a big firm in New York, very similar to the one that I worked at. And I think for him, after about a year, he recognized that he had ended up on this really terrible path, and he just quit. And then I think he started PayPal. And I didn't know many people who really had the courage to just quit a job like that, but I was inspired by his story. And so I lasted a little bit longer than he did. I just decided to leave the law. But fortunately, during my time there, I had started studying different areas of technology. I had no background in tech. I didn't know the first thing about computer science or even the tech industry. But I noticed that people who were working in tech seemed to be much more satisfied with what they were doing. They just found it more interesting. They cared about outcomes of things they were working on. And so I read a bunch of books on different areas. I read something on what was called big data at the time, which they call AI today. Didn't really resonate. But then I read a book about Bitcoin, The Age of Cryptocurrency by Paul Vigna and Michael Casey, which came out, I believe, at the end of 2014. And that one really clicked. I think the big ideas behind Bitcoin were super exciting to me. So I started buying some Bitcoin. I started evangelizing it a little bit. And long story short, after I left my law firm, I found this job opening on AngelList for a position doing venture capital at this firm in New York that nobody had ever heard of called Digital Currency Group. And I was very determined to get the job and did. And so started there in 2015. Before we get into the guts of the show, something I've been wanting to ask you for a while is, in my experience, when people study either law or science or 
something like that, accounting, doesn't really matter. They form certain mental models of the world. And law in particular is a very interesting field that once you learn it, you can't unlearn it. You see the world, at least I think so, in a different way. How do you think about that? When you went from studying and practicing law to VC, what sort of mental models and worldviews did you bring with you? So the areas I was most interested in during law school were contract law, property law, and corporate law. And all of those are highly applicable to what I do today. One of the things you learn in property laws is that property rights are not as simple as they seem, that they are effectively social constructs that have been formalized in legal systems. And I think that some of the big ideas in crypto are very much around property rights and what it means for something to be property. You also obviously have some interesting concepts around contracts and what it means for people to agree to something explicitly or implicitly. And in terms of corporate law, one of the big principles in corporate law that you study is the principal agent problem. And the principal agent problem is all about aligning incentives between the individuals who represent a group and the group. And I think in crypto, we're very much still wrestling with how we solve some of these principal agent problems between developers of protocols and token holders and between creators of NFTs and NFT owners. And on the venture side, principal agent problems come up all the time as well, as there's not a perfect alignment between venture investors and founders and other stakeholders in companies. So I think those big picture concepts have definitely affected how I approach what I do. There's also a lot of nitty gritty details that are highly applicable as well. The actual nuts and bolts of contract law is super helpful if you're doing investing and having a broad based understanding of how the legal system functions, the role of legislation, the role of common law, which is law made by courts, the role of regulation. And I think that's just really helpful context for understanding a wide variety of issues that we confront as investors in the space and participants in crypto. Super helpful, Travis. And so you left big law, moved to DCG in 2015. Could you paint a picture of what that was like, what you did on a day-to-day basis, but also what the industry was like? Just remember to all listeners, this was two, maybe three market cycles ago in crypto. So very different times. Curious what that was like, Travis. The industry was so much smaller. There were only a handful of full-time investors in the space. There was DCG, there was Pantera, there was Blockchain Capital, and the guys at Boost VC were about 50% Bitcoin crypto at the time. There were a few hundred companies in the space. Today, there are many thousands. And the ideas were a little bit different, although... There are many ideas that were in vogue, went out of vogue, came back into vogue, some in the same form, some in a different form. When I joined DCG, there was really just Bitcoin. 
Ripple and Stellar existed, and there was a long tail of some other coins as well that nobody really cared about. But the focus at the time was on building exchanges, creating wallets, and creating custody tools. In the first year or two, there were a bunch of hot ideas around cross-border payments with companies like Abra and Align, which became Beam and Vitesa, which became AZA. And I think cross-border payments was really considered to be the big use case for Bitcoin at the time. A lot of people were excited about it. It didn't really work, but it's certainly come back with stablecoins. And I think a lot of people are excited about how we can use stablecoins and other crypto assets to send money around the world more efficiently. Many people already are. There was also a lot of hype around enterprise blockchain at the time. So this was the idea of creating these private permissioned networks that primarily banks and other financial institutions could use to make the settlement process more efficient with companies like Exxoni and Digital Asset Holdings. And there was this consortium called R3 and a handful of others. And those really did not work. That being said, I still see hints of some of the ideas around enterprise blockchain in certain ecosystems today, like Cosmos, where there's a limited number of validators and the validators coordinate with each other and the networks are open, but they are run by a fixed number of validators in all instances. So you have that, but there were a lot of other ideas as well around identity, micropayments, music, and then starting in 2016, you started to see some ideas around DeFi before the term emerged as well. I think there's a lot of learnings from the early days that many people have forgotten that are very much applicable today. If we go back to 2015, 2016, Travis, and peek into your mind, do you remember any strongly held ideas you held at the time that much later until now either ended up working or not working. Very curious to hear what sort of things were you deeply passionate about as they pertain to crypto back then? The thing that got me excited about Bitcoin when I first read about it was the idea of using it as a more efficient payments network. I think people get attracted, or in the early days, they were attracted to Bitcoin either for political reasons or for technical reasons, if they were passionate about the computer science and cryptography advances that were made, or for economic reasons. And for me, it was mostly the economic side, although I find the other two areas quite interesting as well. And the idea that you could create this decentralized ledger that disintermediated financial institutions. And that early crop of cross-border payments companies failed to live up to the hype, but I think that the volumes we see in stablecoins today, the infrastructure that we've seen built around that, and the potential there is that crypto networks will be the primary systems for international payments in many forms. So that's one that I was super excited about, didn't work out in its first form and came back. There were some interesting ideas around identity as well. There were early companies like OneName, which subsequently became Blockstack and Showcard and Civic. And I think a lot of people are excited about identity again in 2022 with ENS and some of the 
companies that are getting built to utilize ENS or to build on-chain KYC systems. So that's a broad category that is still very much unproven, but that I believe the infrastructure is in place for to use blockchains for self-sovereign identity systems that can not only make blockchains more functional for people who already use them, but also extend out into the real world. Then you have ideas like music. So there were some early companies in the on-chain media rights space, including Media Chain by Jesse, who now runs Variant, and there's a few other companies in that vein. And they all failed in the first batch. And then there was a lot of hype around music NFTs last year. It feels to me like the music NFT space, once again, hasn't really gone anywhere. So it's interesting to see these ideas cycle back. It definitely is interesting to see some of the themes and ideas maybe fail in one market cycle. And then as the tools and underlying platforms improve, it becomes a little easier and a, and a little better. And that might just be how this keeps evolving in the future. Like this industry, the same idea is being tried over and over. And most of the time, they'll fail for similar reasons. But at a certain point, they'll start working for XYZ reasons. I think we very much saw this in the first internet bubble as well. There were companies like Pets.com, Webvan, et cetera, that people got excited about. They failed. Then people made fun of them. And of course, many of these ideas have now come back and succeeded. I think we'll very much see that in crypto over the next decade. Diving a bit more into DCG, I think DCG is in a lot of headlines today, obviously, but back then, very different company, very different time. What was it like to be on the inside of one of the larger, more important companies in crypto and see it grow over a few cycles? It was fascinating and a lot of fun. When I started there in 2015, the price of Bitcoin was about $300. And then we watched it run up to 20000 And when I left at the end of 2019, it was probably around 10000 And just to see the influx of talent over those four years and to see the excitement around crypto generally just trend up and up and to see the technology evolve with the launch of Ethereum towards the end of 2015 and then many other blockchains. It was super exciting. It was fun in particular because when I arrived there, people were just so skeptical about Bitcoin. I think most people who knew anything were more excited about this notion of blockchain, but not Bitcoin. Personally, I really enjoyed being in a field when it was very contrarian and enjoyed it a bit less when it was overhyped at times. And I think now we're in another contrarian period, which certainly has its benefits. And I don't know if it's just my personality or whatever, but it feels good to feel a little bit more like an underdog. and We have a challenge ahead rather than to feel like the wider world has misconceptions about what this technology can do in the near term and have to dampen some of that hype. Since we're chatting about crypto in 2015, 2016, 2017, I'm curious, the makeup of the people in the industry, how that has changed, Travis, in general, what are the sort of people you met in 2015 to 2018? 
And how do they compare to people in the crypto industry nowadays? In the early days, the vast majority of entrepreneurs in the open blockchain space, which was initially around Bitcoin and then Ethereum, were hardcore missionaries. And they were very courageous people. Some of the people I most admire are the really early entrepreneurs in the space who got in and started building long before anybody had conviction that this was going anywhere. I think the obvious ones are folks like Brian Armstrong and Jesse Powell and Eric Voorhees. But there are others like Daniel Vogel, who built Bitso, and Elizabeth Rossiello, who built Pesa, and Ola Dudin, who built BitOasis. And these were people who really had conviction that Bitcoin and crypto networks were going to be a positive force for humanity. And they were not in it for a quick buck. What they were doing at the time was immensely challenging, building these exchanges in a compliant way, sometimes in far-flung parts of the world. I think there were some more opportunistic mercenary types at the time who were building enterprise blockchains, but I wouldn't say that they were low integrity. They weren't in it for a quick buck, per se. They just weren't really in it for some broader mission. They just thought they could build businesses that could create a lot of enterprise value by helping financial institutions cut costs. But then starting in the 2017 ICO boom, we started to see a different character show up. Folks who wanted to make a quick buck by launching and selling tokens to naive investors. And it was very interesting to see in our portfolio at the time, basically any established crypto firm had this opportunity during a brief window to do an ICO and raise an amount of money that would not have been fathomable just a year or two earlier. The venture markets in crypto were very, very small. And we watched a bunch of companies wrestle with that opportunity. And some of them had really interesting, potentially revolutionary ideas. And they went out and launched a token to create a new protocol and totally respect what they did. Some of them had totally half-baked ideas and wanted to get some money on their balance sheet that was non-dilutive. Then we also had a class of companies that saw this temptation, wrestled with it, and decided not to pursue it. And I don't think anybody who made that decision eventually regretted it. And there were many companies that did ICOs that did come to regret it. It was a very interesting time in that respect. And I think what we've seen since then is crypto has gone through a few cycles. Over the last couple of years, it weirdly became hip and cool, I think, in millennial and Gen Z circles. And that was not something it was in the early days at all. And it became cultural with NFTs and some of these blockchains that are super heavily marketed. And I think some of the people who bought in then bought in for cultural reasons. And it'll be very interesting to see if the folks who describe themselves as DGENs and the folks who love flipping NFTs stick around over the next year or two. It's always interesting to hear the makeup of the industry and how that changes over time. 
Because a lot of people, we say terms like industry without really thinking it through. And it really just is a group of people working on something in a similar space. And you look at the makeup of the semiconductor industry, Travis just recommended a book to me on semiconductors. I've been reading that. And you compare that to the internet industry, the crypto industry, and they all seem to have a general similarity in how they mature, where you first have this crop of true believers who are maybe not the most commercial or pedigreed folks, but they really give a shit. They're there for the right reasons for the technology. And then over time, that gets diluted, not necessarily in a bad way, but definitely attracts some opportunists, some more commercial people, some people who are there because they notice their smart friends are getting into it. So for the social signal, and that seems to be a recurring theme in all cycles, the makeup of the industry changes, and it generally skews to be a little bit less true believery and more commercial over time. Totally. There's only a certain part of the population that can be visionary, and there's only a certain part of the population that's ever going to be truly missionary. So I think this is a natural progression. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the industry grows up from here. I think it went from a phase where you had folks who really cared about the ideals, and then you had a bunch of greedy folks who wanted to take advantage of the hype around the space. And I think a lot of those folks are going to get washed out. And it's now really on the technologists to prove that we can deliver the use cases that have been promised. It's largely going to be a function of regulation as well. I think that to the extent that the space stays totally unregulated, it's going to continue to be fertile ground for bad actors, and that's going to scare a lot of people away. But on the other hand, if the space ends up being overly regulated such that the good actors can't achieve their goals, it's not going to be able to achieve its potential. So Regulation is an absolutely critical factor here, and I think the next couple of years are critical on that front. Speaking a little about regulation, since you brought it up, as everyone listening knows, and certainly everyone on this podcast talking, the ideology of crypto, the sort of people that got involved and the culture that they carried with them, historically, it seems to me that it was very much anti-state, very libertarian, very anti-regulatory framework stick it to the man approach, that sort of ideology, how will it react to the regulation that, of course, is coming, at least in the United States? I'm very sympathetic to the libertarians in the space who are first and foremost building freedom technology. And for me, that is absolutely one of the reasons that I do this. I think that crypto networks have the potential to give people greater autonomy, greater privacy, and just more liberty to control their money, to use it how they see fit, to invest how they see fit. On the other hand, I just don't think that there's much of a path for future growth unless we get smart regulation in the space. We live in a world with many established institutions that are not going anywhere. And we need to create systems that they can interact with in some way, shape, or form if the technology is going to scale and truly go mainstream. I think there will always be people 
at the extremes who want no regulation whatsoever. And I think some of those people who are anti-regulation for truly principled reasons are a very important voice in the space. And I think we should listen to them and listen to their reasons and understand them and consider them as we put new rules in place here. On the other hand, there's also a crop of people who want no regulation because that means that it provides them with greater opportunity to take advantage of other people. And we should be very wary of those people. I do think a balance needs to be struck here and compromises will need to be made. And there will probably be early idealists who are dissatisfied with the direction that the industry takes. But unfortunately, I think you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you want this technology to fulfill its potential, there need to be some guardrails. I totally agree. We've chatted a little bit about your background, a little about how the industry felt and how you perceived it in the early days. And given what's happened in the last year and six months in particular, I thought it'd be interesting because I know you quite well and talk about ethics and integrity because ever since I've known you, since 2018 or so, you've been exceptionally good at spotting people who have bad ethics and poor integrity. And I think you mentioned this anecdote on another episode where you have met. Well, we met SBF together back in 2018, if I remember right. And from what I recall from that meeting, you immediately had your radar go off after meeting SBF. And I'm just curious, first of all, do you agree that you have a good eye for ethics and integrity? And as a follow-up question to that, how do you train people to have vision for that stuff? I would say, first off, it wasn't just me. I think you too if I recall correctly, recognized that something was very off about the SBF and the other Alameda folks that we met, I think, in early 2019. Do I agree that I have a good eye for ethics and integrity? I would say I care about it. And thus, I'm on the lookout for people who have ethical issues and who have the potential to act in bad ways. And this might go back to my legal training, just looking out for conflicts of interest and trying to identify principal agent problems, but also trying to identify the types of characters who will get themselves and those who are associated with them into trouble is just something that I care about in work in particular, also my personal life. And so I think a lot of it's just an orientation perhaps more so than a skill. In terms of the skill, I think you have to listen very carefully to what people say. I don't think you can identify integrity issues by reading body language or trying to sense somebody's aura. I think it's actually very careful listening to the specific words that people use. As a venture investor, when you ask them questions, you have a conversation with them. And so if you have folks who don't answer your questions directly, you should wonder why have they dodged this question. If you have folks who say two things that contradict, you should recognize that. If you see things in a pitch deck that don't fully make sense or look like meaningful exaggerations, people who exaggerate are also people who lie. And people who lie are people who want to be able to get away with stuff. Sometimes people will 
actually tell you that they're doing something for what you might consider a nefarious reason as well. In fact, in the case of SBF, when we met him, he was running Alameda and he was starting FTX. And one of the big red flags was that he told us he had an outside investor in Alameda. And it was the Alameda team that was launching FTX. And at the time, they were selling the FTT token. And we asked him, won't this investor in Alameda have a stake in FTX, given that they've been funding you and you are using their capital, operating as an agent on their behalf while running Alameda and using your time to launch this new business, they should have a stake in it too. There's a question as to why they even needed two entities. They were two different ideas. Obviously, the ideas had conflicts in and of themselves, but he basically told us that part of the reason he wanted to start this as a new business was because he didn't want to give them equity in the new business or tokens in FTT and that he thought he could get away with it. And that, to me, was the big red flag. Setting aside that he was setting up these two separate businesses that had a conflict, the fact that he was knowingly screwing over his early investor was totally shocking to me. The bottom line is, if you ask people the right questions, sometimes they will essentially admit that they're doing things that are unethical or in some sort of a gray zone. So it's about listening to what people say and then not deluding yourself because you think you can make money. I think with FTX, there were red flags galore that a lot of people tucked into a little compartment in their brain and didn't think too hard about because they were more interested in the potential financial upside. And you have to be very careful. As Richard Feynman says, don't fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool, something like that. And I think people are deluding themselves all the time when they see that there's potential upside for them and they end up getting into trouble for that. I think so much about this where we've all met people who have the reality distortion field, who in their presence, you will believe anything, even if deep down, you know, it's BS. And of course, Steve Jobs popularized this, but he was a success. So we attribute positive energy to reality distortion field. But for every positive person who can do that, there's a bunch of negative ones. And SBF probably is a good example where in this presence, I think a lot of people are like, well, very charmed by the intellect and don't really see. They look past the bluffing or the fibbing. It's a really interesting thing because I think it's a really important skill set for founders to have to be able to manifest reality. And of course, the reality distortion field is how they do that. But there's a line. And if you cross it, like SBF did, there's no coming back from it. I think it's interesting that a lot of the really early crypto investors didn't associate themselves with Alameda and FTX. I suspect that Sam, from that 2019 meeting onward, got much better at this reality distortion thing. And he took on this persona as actually an extremely ethical person, a maximally ethical person. That in and of itself was certainly a tell. But having the ability to sell and get people excited and manifest the future by helping people imagine it before it's arrived is a very powerful skill. And it is a fine line. 
crossing from that into being a con man or a total charlatan. And as an investor, you have to make these judgment calls. When is somebody just a really good salesman, really charismatic? And when is somebody leaning a little too far in the direction of stretching the truth such that they could really harm people and things could go off the rails? And it's something that I do believe you can build up the capacity to recognize just through reps. You meet thousands and thousands of founders and you pay attention to what happens with those who you invest in and those who you don't invest in. And you start to recognize some of the signs. This is true of just recognizing talent in general, but it's also true of recognizing when people have ethical issues. And some of those you'll be able to identify and express consciously. And some of those, your mind will just pick up on the patterns and it'll give you a certain feeling when you meet somebody. And there's many instances in which I'll just say, I didn't really like that person's vibe. And it's nothing mystical. It's just your brain operating on a subconscious level. And that's the benefit of experience. I think a lot of people have gained a lot of experience through this last market cycle. And hopefully people have learned something, although human nature doesn't change. So we'll see. Super interesting to hear you talk through that. Maybe on the flip side, are there any individuals or companies that stand out as being particularly high integrity and admirable in that sense? If you were talking to a young founder in your portfolio and wanted to give them a few examples to strive towards, are there any that come to mind? Yeah, one who comes to mind is Roham of Dapper Labs. We invested in Dapper Seed Round at DCG, did a few follow-ons, also invested in Dapper and Flow out of North Island Ventures. So I've been working with the Dapper team and following along with them since I actually met them even before CryptoKitties launched in 2017. And Dapper basically set off the first little NFT boom in late 2017. And then again with Topshot at the beginning of 2021. And I think Roham was doing a lot of public speaking about Dapper and the future of NFTs when Topshot was really hot and in the aftermath. And I think he really did an amazing job of describing what the future of these digital property rights could look like without stretching the truth and without exaggerating anything. And in our dealings with him, I've always found him to be an amazing visionary who's also super high integrity. He's really a great example of that. I think it's just on this topic, and then we'll go on to the next one. But this one's really interesting. And not one I don't think people really speak about. It's like the sort of thing your parents will teach you, your grandparents will talk to you about, but you won't really talk about in professional conversation, which I think is a bad thing. But conditioning the mind to develop that pattern recognition for integrity and ethics you said the vibes thing. I do think part of it could be taught and conditioned. A lot of the things you grow up listening to or reading certainly form your worldview of what is acceptable and what is not. And of course, a lot of really religious business leaders, they tend to over-index on integrity because that is their worldview. I do think having founders who from a very young age read about ethics, integrity in business, 
in the commercial sense and having a moral compass for what is right and what is wrong, that certainly helps. You see guys like Warren Buffett preaching about this stuff to CEOs to basically read what the good guys are doing and avoid doing what the bad guys do. Because if you stick around with too many bad guys, that will certainly influence your behavior. It's sort of like how people say your personality is going to be the average of your 10 closest friends. There's a lot of truth in that, and especially in business. Yeah, trust and reputation are the most powerful long-term currencies in business. And one of the ways that you build those is by associating with other people who are trustworthy, ethical, and high integrity. And the way that you can associate yourself with those people is by behaving the way that they do. Karma is real, not in a mystical sense, but in the sense that deeply ingrained in our genetic code is this concept of reciprocal altruism, whereby people are more inclined to do favors for and be altruistic towards those who they believe will do right by them in the future. Integrity, it's an advantage over the longer term. There isn't, in my view, this trade-off between, oh, I can break the rules and do better, or I can follow the rules and I think generally accepted moral principles and make compromises. I think in the short term, that's the case. But over the longer term, if you develop a reputation for doing the right thing and being a good partner to people and telling the truth, you will find that there are many more opportunities open to you in the future. And beyond that, we also have systems that reinforce this notion of karma. We have a legal system. So we've built up these actual mechanisms for punishing those who do the wrong thing. And they're not perfect. I think SBF getting arrested and likely going to jail for life is great news. But there's plenty of other folks who've violated laws and ethical principles during this last bubble who've gotten away with it. And that's unfortunate, but at least socially, some of these norms will continue to be enforced because many people will recognize that these people did the wrong thing and they won't do business with them going forward. Changing topics a little bit, obviously, there's been a lot of talk in the last few years about how there's many more crypto funds at least maybe a year ago, it felt like every week you would have a new one launching, whether they were doing a hedge fund strategy or a more traditional venture strategy. What's your general sense on the crypto fund landscape? How do you think about creating something differentiated so that if you're talking to a founder, you stick in their memory and you stand out and they have a reason to really want to work with you? How do you think about creating the energy? I think that the crypto fund landscape is very much in flux right now and is likely to change meaningfully over the next few years. I think one of the primary ways that funds differentiated themselves over the last few years was through marketing. It was through building the biggest personal brands for their partners, Twitter and through other mediums and building the biggest brands for their funds by marketing them. and sometimes using those brands to effectively create retail hype around many of the tokens that they already own. And I think that a lot of those folks were also the same people who 
took too much risk and deployed too quickly during the bubble. The extreme example, obviously, being somebody like Three Arrows Capital. But there's many points along that continuum. And so that's never how we've approached investing and adding value. Our approach is to give founders the best advice that we possibly can to be extremely loyal to them and give them access to a massive and extremely strong network of potential partners all over the world. And so my hope is that founders going forward in crypto will focus a little bit more on who are the firms that they want to work with because the team members at those firms are actually going to help them think about how they build their business and build their business and less so around who's going to provide the most hype when we do the fundraising announcement. I think that there's a lot of funds right now that raise much more than they should have with their last venture fund, and they're going to struggle to deliver returns there, and that's going to create challenge for them. So I think there's a lot of funds that deployed much too quickly, some of them on a one-year or less deployment schedule during the bubble, and they're going to have a hard time going back to their LPs and saying, we're responsible stewards of capital. And there's a lot of funds that associated themselves with the wrong brands because they may not have been thinking hard enough about these integrity questions and what that means for the long term. And I think the market may view some of those funds differently going forward. So I think it's an opportunity for folks to basically build venture firms that are focused on the things that matter over the longer term. There's also going to be a lot less capital in the space. From a day-to-day perspective, deals are happening much more slowly and much more reasonable valuations. And that is a nice return to normal for us, for sure. I think you're the perfect guy to ask this or just chat with about. But there's this camp of venture investors that would say, well, the value add or one of the value add that we provide to portfolio companies is the cheerleading, is the extremely positive promotion on social media, right? And a lot of GPs and partners have large Twitter followings, 50 to 100,000 individuals. And they'll just promote every single portfolio company, even if they deep down may not believe in it with the intuition that, hey, first of all, that is the value we provide. And two is this will make number go up. I am an investor in this company and I want to promote it. How do you think about that? Because clearly there's so many conflicts of interest here. And clearly there's a lot of different philosophies on the role of the venture investor in promotion. But I'm very curious how you think about it. First off, in crypto specifically, I think that investors should be measured in how much promotion of portfolio companies they do. We're dealing with highly volatile assets that people invest in. And I think that A, from an ethical perspective, and B, from a commercial perspective, you don't want to be the person who pipes up some asset that subsequently falls 95% in value. I think it's okay to promote a new technology or a new business in a measured form. These companies in crypto need to do marketing. And I can't tell you precisely where that line is, but I just don't think that that's a good or sustainable 
business practice. The other thing I would say is there's perhaps a little bit of inavailability bias here, whereby people might assume that all the best venture investment firms are those that have the biggest brands, but there's many great venture investors. Benchmark comes to mind, potentially the greatest venture investment firm of the last 20 plus years that keeps a super low profile. And the way that they do it is by allocating their resources towards identifying and backing the best entrepreneurs in the world, and then working very hard behind the scenes on their behalf to make those companies successful. And there's different approaches. There's different ways to play the venture game. Being very focused on branding and signaling, it absolutely can work. It absolutely has benefits to a firm and to the companies that they back, but it is not the only way to be a great investor. I don't think it's going away. I think that venture firms are going to continue to be very focused on media and branding, obviously, but it's not the only way to be a successful investor, even in a space like crypto. My one very anecdotal observation on this is generally, not always, of course, New York and then East Coast investors tend to be a lot more conservative and fundamentals focused when it comes to stuff like this. And West Coast investors are a lot more into signaling and, for lack of a better term, cheerleading their portfolio companies. And it's just always interesting to see the difference your play styles that East Coast and West Coast investors have picked up and learned over the years. There's definitely some truth to that. It may be the result of the fact that there's just so many more venture funds on the West Coast that you really have to stand out in some way, shape, or form. I'm a believer that at the end of the day, your brand is your portfolio. And so you can use your brand to get into some of the best deals and become more successful that way. And it's a reinforcing cycle. But over the longer term, if you find the best entrepreneurs in the world and you work with them and you help make them successful, you'll build a sufficient brand to go on doing that. And so it's a perfectly viable approach to focus much more on the behind the scenes work of great investing rather than just marketing. I also think that venture investing and company building, let's remember the feedback cycles are very long. Venture firms are measured over many years, if not decades. Crypto as an industry is maybe barely or a little over a decade at most. So I think it's just something important to keep in mind for any listeners and founders out there that the past year or two of success or activity may not be a barometer of how long-term successful or valuable this investor or partner could be. Totally. We have some LPs that very much lived through the first tech bubble in Silicon Valley, 99, 2000. They've told us that there were all these super hot venture firms that got a lot of press and were super well regarded on the way up. But after things crashed, they didn't survive, either due to their performance or due to their issues amongst their partners are very common. And so I think that we're very likely to see some changes in 
the landscape of crypto VC over the next few years. I mean, there's many firms that I think are built to last and are very well positioned for this crypto winter and have a long-term time horizon. But there are others that I think are much more fragile today than they might have expected a year or two ago. One other question from me is, we've talked about a few different sectors on this podcast already. We've touched on some of the earlier ones, Bitcoin, cross-border payments, all the way to the other end of the spectrum on NFTs and music NFTs. But if you had to pick a few that you're most excited about, let's say over the next two or three years, what would they be and why? So first and foremost, I would say on the DeFi side, I think that we've proven that we can use these decentralized networks and smart contracts to create systems that disintermediate traditional financial intermediaries and offer all sorts of products and services that couldn't previously exist. And on top of that, it's been noted by many that DeFi held up much better than CeFi during 2022. And now I'm really interested in how can we take these primitives and tools that we've built and solve problems in the real world, perhaps by bringing real world assets into crypto in some way, shape or form, or by bringing crypto to the real world. So that's a theme that we're very interested in and very excited about. On the infrastructure side, we're super interested in interoperability and the Cosmos ecosystem and a cross-chain future. I think we've been investing in that since 2020 with Axelar and Polymer and a bunch of investments in the Cosmos space. And my vision of crypto longer term is it's a network of networks whereby people can spin up app chains, use case specific chains, and it all gets tied together by an interoperability network like Axelar or IBC. I think that's where the world is headed. I think Many people agree with that now. We're pretty excited about that. There's some other further flung ideas that we're pretty excited about as well. One that's piqued my interest is DSI, Decentralized Science, just because in my spare time, I like to read a lot about science as a total amateur, but I'm a big believer that science is the primary driver of all human progress, but science is written with a slew of serious problems these days related to the traditional structures and institutions that exist, including the whole publication landscape and notions of censorship and the difficulty in funding certain types of research and the replication crisis. And I'm not yet sure that DSI can solve that, but I think if it can, it's a massive opportunity. And the sorts of entrepreneurs that we've met in that space, and we backed a few, they feel a lot like the early entrepreneurs in the Bitcoin space in 2015. So it's a small one, but it's a really, really interesting one. And I'm hopeful that more categories like that will emerge over the next couple of years where we think less about how can we create tools for speculation and speculative assets, but how can we use the tools that have been built to solve real world problems? So that is our orientation going forward. I actually haven't heard many people talk about DSI before. So yeah, very interesting to hear you bring that up. Yeah, I know at least one longtime crypto investor who's 
now focusing on it full time. It's a tiny space. It's nascent. It's not likely to inflect super quickly. There's a tremendous amount of challenges, but it's one of the most exciting little areas in crypto right now. A topical question for me. We sort of have a theme for this podcast, which is it's a grab bag of questions. You're a fascinating guy, so we're going all over the place. But there's this thing that happens where after a bad event happens, people develop scar tissue. Certainly people who grew up in World War II developed a pessimistic worldview. People who grew up throughout the Great Depression were very conservative with their money. What do you think of the scar tissue that this last year will bring to the crypto market? I think there's two categories of scar tissue. One is on the finance side. The other is on the social cultural side. I think on the finance side, people have learned a lot about leverage. They've learned a lot about liquidity. They've learned a lot about counterparty risk. They've learned a lot about correlation. These are concepts that people have paid lip service to, but a lot of the people who talked about them haven't really experienced the downsides of them until now. And I know we've learned a lot about those categories of risk and how catastrophic they can be and how they can materialize. So it's likely that a lot of people who worked in finance during the financial crisis learned similar lessons as well. And going forward, I think that many of us who have lived through this will be more able to recognize as these risks emerge, particularly during asset bubbles, but during normal markets as well in the future. I think on the cultural side, the social side, I think we've learned a little bit about human nature here, which doesn't change. But we do have these new tools for projecting human nature, which is called social media and the rise of influential culture over the last five years in particular, not just in crypto, but these platforms really provide a set of bad incentives for charlatans or would-be charlatans. And it's very interesting how the people who made the most extreme claims, who were the most brash and combative, who were the least open to nuanced intellectual conversations, who had some of the strongest opinions who very intentionally crafted followings, they rose the fastest and they've fallen the fastest. And at least within crypto, my hope is people will be a little bit more wary of these influencer types and what their incentives are and how it is that they came to become so prominent and popular. I think a lot of people looked at these folks and thought that their fame was a function of their success when it turns out that their temporary success was a function of their ability to grow their fame. And so there's some real scar tissue on those two fronts that at least I have, and I'm sure many others do. And I think it's going to be very valuable. Travis, thanks a lot for coming on today and chatting through a few different topics from the early crypto investing days and the difference in investing through all these different market cycles. And we also touched a lot on recent events and the importance of ethics and integrity and tips for how founders should think about that. And very timely, I think, to hear about some of the areas that you're keeping an eye for and excited about over the next few years. So really appreciate you coming on today. Derek, Larry, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me.